Section 6 of The Jim Crow Car, or Denouncement of Injustice Meted Out to the Black Race, by John Clay Coleman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 3, Dissenting Opinion. Mr. Justice Harlan Dissenting. The opinion in these cases proceeds, it seems to me, upon grounds entirely too narrow and artificial. I cannot resist the conclusion that the substance and spirit of the recent amendments of the Constitution have been sacrificed by a subtle and ingenious verbal criticism. It is not the words of the law, but the internal sense of it, that makes the law. The letter of the law is the body. The sense and reason of the law is the soul. Constitutional provisions, adopted in the interest of liberty, and for the purpose of securing, through national legislation, if need be, rights inhering in a state of freedom, and belonging to American citizenship, have been so construed as to defeat the ends the people desired to accomplish, which they attempted to accomplish, and which they supposed they had accomplished by changes in their fundamental law. By this I do not mean that the determination of these cases should have been materially controlled by considerations of mere expediency or policy. I mean only in this form to express an earnest conviction that the court has departed from the familiar rule requiring, in the interpretation of constitutional provisions, that full effect be given to the intent with which they were adopted. The purpose of the first section of the Act of Congress of March 1, 1875, was to prevent race discrimination in respect of the accommodations and facilities of inns, public conveyances, and places of public amusement. It does not assume to define the general conditions and limitations under which inns, public conveyances, and places of public amusement may be conducted, but only declares that such conditions and limitations, whatever they may be, shall not be applied so as to work a discrimination solely because of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The second section provides a penalty against anyone denying or aiding or inciting the denial to any citizen of that equality of right given by the first section, except for reasons by law applicable to citizens of every race or color and regardless of any previous condition of servitude. There seems to be no substantial difference between my brethren and myself as to the purpose of Congress. For, they say that the essence of the law is, not to declare broadly that all persons shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, public conveyances, and theaters, but that such enjoyment shall not be subject to conditions applicable only to citizens of a particular race or color, or who had been in a previous condition of servitude. The effect of the statute, the court says, is that colored citizens, whether formerly slaves or not, and citizens of other races, shall have the same accommodations and privileges in all inns, public conveyances, and places of amusement as are enjoyed by white persons, and vice versa. The court adjudges, I think erroneously, that Congress is without power, under either the 13th or 14th Amendments, to establish such regulations, and that the first and second sections of the statute are, in all their parts, unconstitutional and void. Whether the legislative department of the government has transcended the limits of its constitutional powers is at all times, said the court in Fletcher v. Peck, 6 CR 128, a question of much delicacy, 
which ought seldom, if ever, to be decided in the affirmative in a doubtful case. The opposition between the Constitution and the law should be such that the judge feels a clear and strong conviction of their incompatibility with each other. More recently, in sinking fund cases, 99 U.S. 718, we said, It is our duty, when required in the regular course of judicial proceedings, to declare an act of Congress void if not within the legislative power of the United States. But this declaration should never be made except in a clear case. Every possible presumption is in favor of the validity of a statute and this continues until the contrary is shown beyond a rational doubt. One branch of the government cannot encroach on the domain of another without danger. The safety of our institutions depends in no small degree on a strict observance of this salutary rule. Before considering the language and scope of these amendments, it will be proper to recall the relations subsisting prior to their adoption between the national government and the institution of slavery, as indicated by the provisions of the Constitution, the legislation of Congress, and the decisions of this court. In this mode, we may obtain keys with which to open the mind of the people and discover the thought intended to be expressed. In Section 2 of Article 4 of the Constitution, it was provided that no person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Under authority of this clause, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, establishing a mode for the recovery of fugitive slaves, and prescribing a penalty against any person who should knowingly and willingly obstruct or hinder the master, his agent, or attorney in seizing and recovering the fugitive, or who should rescue the fugitive from him, or who should harbor or conceal the slave after notice that he was a fugitive. In Prig v. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, 16 Pet 539, this court had occasion to define the powers and duties of Congress in reference to fugitives from labor. Speaking by Mr. Justice Story, it laid down these propositions. That a clause of the Constitution conferring a right should not be so construed as to make it shadowy or unsubstantial, or leave the citizen without a remedial power adequate for its protection when another construction, equally accordant with the words in the sense in which they were used, would enforce and protect the right granted. That Congress is not restricted to legislation for the execution of its expressly granted powers, but for the protection of rights guaranteed by the Constitution may employ such means, not prohibited, as are necessary and proper, or such as are appropriate, to attain the ends proposed that the Constitution recognized the master's right of property in his fugitive slave, and, as incidental thereto, the right of seizing and recovering him, regardless of any state law, or regulation, or local custom whatsoever, and that the right of the master to have his slave, thus escaping, delivered up on claim, being guaranteed by the Constitution, the fair implication was that the national government was clothed with appropriate authority and functions to enforce it. The court said, the fundamental principle applicable to all cases of this sort would seem to be that when the end is required, the means are given, and when the duty is enjoined, 
the ability to perform it is contemplated to exist on the part of the functionary to whom it is entrusted. Again, it would be a strange anomaly and forced construction to suppose that the national government meant to rely for the due fulfillment of its own proper duties and the rights which it intended to secure upon state legislation and not upon that of the Union. A fortiori, it would be more objectionable to suppose that a power which was to be the same throughout the Union should be confided to state sovereignty which could not rightfully act beyond its own territorial limits. The Act of 1793 was, upon these grounds, adjudged to be a constitutional exercise of the powers of Congress. It is to be observed from the report of Prigg's case that Pennsylvania, by her attorney general, pressed the argument that the obligation to surrender fugitive slaves was on the states and for the states, subject to the restriction that they should not pass laws or establish regulations liberating such fugitives that the Constitution did not take from the states the right to determine the status of all persons within their respective jurisdictions, that it was for the state in which the alleged fugitive was found to determine, through her courts or in such modes as she prescribed, whether the person arrested was, in fact, a freeman or a fugitive slave, that the sole power of the general government in the premises was, by judicial instrumentality, to restrain and correct not to forbid and prevent in the absence of hostile state action, and that for the general government to assume primary authority to legislate on the subject of fugitive slaves to the exclusion of the states would be a dangerous encroachment on state sovereignty. But to such suggestions, this court turned a deaf ear and adjudged that primary legislation by Congress to enforce the master's right was authorized by the Constitution. We next come to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the constitutionality of which rested, as did that of 1793, solely upon the implied power of Congress to enforce the master's rights. The provisions of that act were far in advance of previous legislation. They placed at the disposal of the master seeking to recover his fugitive slave substantially the whole power of the nation. It invested commissioners, appointed under the Act, with power to summon the posse comitatus for the enforcement of its provisions, and commanded all good citizens to assist in its prompt and efficient execution whenever their services were required as part of the posse comitatus. Without going into the details of that Act, it is sufficient to say that Congress omitted from it nothing which the utmost ingenuity could suggest as essential to the successful enforcement of the master's claim to recover his fugitive slave. And this court, in Abelman v. Booth, 21 Howe, 506, adjudged it to be, in all of its provisions fully authorized by the Constitution of the United States. The only other case, prior to the adoption of the recent amendments to which reference will be made, is that of Dred Scott v. Sanford, 19 Howe 399. That case was instituted in a circuit court of the United States by Dred Scott, claiming to be a citizen of Missouri, the defendant being a citizen of another state. Its object was to assert the title of himself and family to freedom. The defendant pleaded in abatement that Scott, being of African descent, whose ancestors of pure African blood were brought into this country and sold as slaves, 
was not a citizen. The only matter in issue, said the court, was whether the descendants of slaves thus imported and sold, when they should be emancipated, or who were born of parents who had become free before their birth, are citizens of a state in the sense in which the word citizen is used in the Constitution of the United States. In determining that question, the court instituted an inquiry as to who were citizens of the several states at the adoption of the Constitution, and who, at that time, were recognized as the people whose rights and liberties had been violated by the British government. The result was a declaration by this court, speaking by Chief Justice Taney, that the legislation and histories of the times, and the language used in the Declaration of Independence, showed that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves, nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as a part of the people, nor intended to be included in the general words used in that instrument. That they had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior race, and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit that he was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic, whenever a profit could be made by it. And that this opinion was at that time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race. It was regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics, which no one thought of disputing or supposed to be open to dispute, and men in every grade and position in society daily and habitually acted upon it in their private pursuits, as well as in matters of public concern, without for a moment doubting the correctness of this opinion. The judgment of the court was that the words people of the United States and citizens meant the same thing, both describing the political body who, according to our Republican institutions, form the sovereignty and hold the power and conduct the government through their representatives. That they are what we familiarly call the sovereign people. And every citizen is one of this people and a constituent member of this sovereignty. But that the class of persons described in the plea in abatement did not compose a portion of this people, were not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, that, therefore, they could claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States, that, on the contrary, they were at that time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and, whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. Such were the relations which formerly existed between the government, whether national or state, and the descendants, whether free or in bondage, of those of African blood who had been imported into this country and sold as slaves. 
The first section of the 13th Amendment provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Its second section declares that Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. This amendment was followed by the Civil Rights Act of April 9, 1866, which, among other things, provided that all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, and hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. 14. Statute 27. The power of Congress in this mode to elevate the enfranchised race to national citizenship was maintained by the supporters of the Act of 1886 to be as full and complete as its power by general statute to make the children, being of full age, of persons naturalized in this country, citizens of the United States, without going through the process of naturalization. The Act of 1866, in this respect, was also likened to that of 1843, in which Congress declared that the Stockbridge tribe of Indians, and each and every one of them, shall be deemed to be, and are hereby declared to be, citizens of the United States, to all intents and purposes, and shall be entitled to all the rights, privileges, and immunities of such citizens, and shall, in all respects, be subject to the laws of the United States." If the Act of 1866 was valid in conferring national citizenship upon all embraced by its terms, then the colored race, enfranchised by the 13th Amendment, became citizens of the United States prior to the adoption of the 14th Amendment. But, in the view which I take of the present case, it is not necessary to examine this question. The terms of the 13th Amendment are absolute and universal. They embrace every race which then was, or might thereafter be, within the United States. No race, as such, can be excluded from the benefits or rights thereby conferred. Yet, it is historically true that that amendment was suggested by the condition in this country of that race which had been declared by this court to have had, according to the opinion entertained by the most civilized portion of the white race at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, no rights which the white man was bound to respect, none of the privileges or immunities secured by that instrument to citizens of the United States. It had reference, in a peculiar sense, to a people which, although the larger part of them were in slavery, had been invited by an act of Congress to aid in saving from overthrow a government which theretofore, by all of its departments, had treated them as an inferior race, with no legal rights or privileges, except such as the white race might choose to grant them. These are the circumstances under which the 13th Amendment was proposed for adoption. They are now recalled only that we may better understand what was in the minds of the people when that amendment was considered, and what were the mischiefs to be remedied and the grievances to be redressed by its adoption. We have seen that the power of Congress by legislation to enforce the master's right to have his slave delivered up on claim was implied from the recognition of that right in the national constitution. But the power conferred by the 13th Amendment does not rest upon implication or inference. 
those who framed it were ignorant of the discussion covering many years of our country's history as to the constitutional power of congress to enact the fugitive slave laws of seventeen ninety three and eighteen fifty when therefore it was determined by a change in the fundamental law to uproot the institution of slavery wherever it existed in the land and to establish universal freedom there was a fixed purpose to place the authority of Congress in the premise, beyond the possibility of a doubt. Therefore, ex industria, power to enforce the 13th Amendment by appropriate legislation was expressly granted. Legislation for that purpose, my brethren concede, may be direct and primary. But to what specific ends may it be directed? This court has uniformly held that the national government has the power, whether expressly given or not, to secure and protect rights conferred or granted by the Constitution. United States v. Reese, 92 U.S. 214, Strouder v. West Virginia, 100 U.S. 303. That doctrine ought not now to be abandoned when the inquiry is not as to an implied power to protect the master's rights, but what may Congress, under powers expressly granted, do for the protection of freedom and the rights necessarily inhering in a state of freedom? The 13th Amendment, it is conceded, did something more than to prohibit slavery as an institution, resting upon distinction of race, and upheld by positive law. My brethren admit that it established and decreed universal civil freedom throughout the United States. But did the freedom thus established involve nothing more than exemption from actual slavery? Was nothing more intended than to forbid one man from owning another as property? Was it the purpose of the nation simply to destroy the institution and then remit the race, theretofore held in bondage, to the several states for such protection in their civil rights, necessarily growing out of freedom, as those states in their discretion might choose to provide? Were the states against whose protest the institution was destroyed to be left free, as far as national interference was concerned, to make or allow discriminations against that race as such in the enjoyment of those fundamental rights which by universal concession inhere in a state of freedom? Had the 13th Amendment stopped with the sweeping declaration in its first section against the existence of slavery and involuntary servitude, except for crime, Congress would have had the power, by implication, according to the doctrine of Prig v. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, repeated in Strouder v. West Virginia, to protect the freedom established, and consequently to secure the enjoyment of such civil rights as were fundamental in freedom that it can exert its authority to that extent is made clear and was intended to be made clear by the express grant of power contained in the second section of the amendment that there are burdens and disabilities which constitute badges of slavery and servitude and that the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the thirteenth amendment may be exerted by legislation of a direct and primary character for the eradication not simply of the institution, but of its badges and incidents, are propositions which ought to be deemed indisputable. They lie at the foundation of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Whether that act was authorized by the 13th Amendment alone, without the support which it subsequently received from the 14th Amendment, 
after the adoption of which it was reenacted with some additions. My brethren do not consider it necessary to inquire. But I submit, with all respect to them, that its constitutionality is conclusively shown by their opinion. They admit, as I have said, that the 13th Amendment established freedom, that there are burdens and disabilities, the necessary incidents of slavery, which constitute its substance and visible form, that Congress, by the Act of 1866, passed in view of the 13th Amendment before the 14th was adopted, undertook to remove certain burdens and disabilities, the necessary incidents of slavery, and to secure to all citizens of every race and color, and without regard to previous servitude, those fundamental rights which are the essence of civil freedom, namely, the same right to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, give evidence, and to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, and convey property as is enjoyed by white citizens. That under the 13th Amendment, Congress has to do with slavery and its incidents, and that legislation, so far as necessary or proper to eradicate all forms and incidents of slavery and involuntary servitude, may be direct and primary, operating upon the acts of individuals, whether sanctioned by state legislation or not. These propositions being conceded, it is impossible, as it seems to me, to question the constitutional validity of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. I do not contend that the 13th Amendment vests Congress with authority by legislation to define and regulate the entire body of the civil rights which citizens enjoy, or may enjoy, in the several states. But I hold that since slavery, as the court has repeatedly declared, Slaughterhouse Cases, 16 Wall 36, Strouder v. West Virginia, 100 U.S. 303, was the moving or principal cause of the adoption of that amendment, and since that institution rested wholly upon the inferiority as a race of those held in bondage, their freedom necessarily involved immunity from and protection against all discrimination against them because of their race, in respect of such civil rights as belong to freemen of other races. Congress, therefore, under its express power to enforce that amendment by appropriate legislation, may enact laws to protect that people against the deprivation, because of their race, of any civil rights granted to other freemen in the same state. And such legislation may be of a direct and primary character, operating upon states, their officers and agents, and also upon at least such individuals and corporations as exercise public functions and wield power and authority under the state. To test the correctness of this position, let us suppose that, prior to the adoption of the 14th Amendment, a state had passed a statute denying to freemen of African descent, resident within its limits, the same right which was accorded to white persons, of making and enforcing contracts, and of inheriting, purchasing, leasing, selling, and conveying property or a statute subjecting colored people to severer punishment for particular offenses than was prescribed for white persons, or excluding that race from the benefit of the laws exempting homesteads from execution. Recall the legislation of 1865 to 1866 in some of the states, of which this court, in the slaughterhouse cases, said that it imposed upon the colored race onerous disabilities and burdens curtailed their rights in the pursuits of life, liberty, and property to such an extent that their freedom was of little value. 
forbade them to appear in the towns in any other character than menial servants, required them to reside on and cultivate the soil without the right to purchase or own it, excluded them from many occupations of gain, and denied them the privilege of giving testimony in the courts where a white man was a party. 16 Wall 57 can there be any doubt that all such enactments might have been reached by direct legislation upon the part of Congress under its express power to enforce the 13th Amendment? Would any court have hesitated to declare that such legislation imposed badges of servitude in conflict with the civil freedom ordained by that amendment? That it would have been in conflict with the 14th Amendment because inconsistent with the fundamental rights of American citizenship does not prove that it would have been consistent with the 13th Amendment. What has been said is sufficient to show that the power of Congress under the 13th Amendment is not necessarily restricted to legislation against slavery as an institution upheld by positive law but may be exerted to the extent at least of protecting the liberated race against discrimination in respect of legal rights belonging to freemen, where such discrimination is based upon race. It remains now to inquire what are the legal rights of colored persons in respect of the accommodations, privileges, and facilities of public conveyances, inns, and places of public amusement. First, as to public conveyances on land and water. In New Jersey Steam Navigation Co. v. Merchants Bank, 6 Howe 344, this court, speaking by Mr. Justice Nelson, said that a common carrier is in the exercise of a sort of public office and has public duties to perform, from which he should not be permitted to exonerate himself without the assent of the parties concerned. To the same effect is Munn v. Illinois, 94 U.S. 113. In Olcott v. Supervisors, 16 Wall 678, it was ruled that railroads are public highways, established by authority of the state for public use, that they are nonetheless public highways because controlled and owned by private corporations, that it is a part of the function of government to make and maintain highways for the convenience of the public, that no matter who is the agent or what is the agency, the function performed is that of the state. That although the owners may be private companies, they may be compelled to permit the public to use these works in the manner in which they can be used. That upon these grounds alone have the courts sustained the investiture of railroad corporations with the state's right of eminent domain, or the right of municipal corporations under legislative authority to assess, levy, and collect taxes to aid in the construction of railroads. So, in Township of Queensbury v. Culver, 19 Wall 83, it was said that a municipal subscription of railroad stock was in aid of the construction and maintenance of a public highway and for the promotion of a public use. Again, in Township of Pine Grove v. Talcott, 19 Wall 666. Though the corporation, railroad, was private, its work was public, as much so as if it were to be constructed by the state. To the like effect are numerous adjudications in this and the state courts with which the profession is familiar. 
The Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts in inhabitants of Worcester v. the Western RR Corporation 4 Met 564 said in reference to a railroad, the establishment of that great thoroughfare is regarded as a public work established by public authority intended for the public use and benefit, the use of which is secured to the whole community and constitutes therefore, like a canal, turnpike or highway, a public easement. It is true that the real and personal property necessary to the establishment and management of the railroad is vested in the corporation, but it is in trust for the public. In Erie, etc., R.R. Co. v. Casey, 26 Penn State, 287, the court, referring to an act repealing the charter of a railroad and under which the state took possession of the road, said, It is a public highway, solemnly devoted to public use. When the lands were taken, it was for such use, or they could not have been taken at all. Railroads established upon land taken by the right of eminent domain by authority of the Commonwealth, created by her laws as thoroughfares for commerce, are her highways. No corporation has property in them, though it may have franchises annexed to and exercisable within them. In many courts, it has been held that because of the public interest in such a corporation, the land of a railroad company cannot be levied on and sold under execution by a creditor. The sum of the adjudged cases is that a railroad corporation is a government agency created primarily for public purposes and subject to be controlled for the public benefit. Upon this ground, the state, when unfettered by contract, may regulate, in its discretion, the rates affairs of passengers and freight. And upon this ground, too, the state may regulate the entire management of railroads in all matters affecting the convenience and safety of the public, as, for example, by regulating speed, compelling stops of prescribed length at stations, and prohibiting discriminations and favoritism. If the corporation neglect or refuse to discharge its duties to the public, it may be coerced to do so by appropriate proceedings in the name or in behalf of the state. Such being the relations these corporations hold to the public, it would seem that the right of a colored person to use an improved public highway upon the terms accorded to freemen of other races is as fundamental in the state of freedom established in this country as are any of the rights which my brethren conceive to be so far fundamental as to be deemed the essence of civil freedom. Personal liberty consists, says Blackstone, in the power of locomotion, of changing situation, of removing one's person to whatever places one's own inclination may direct, without restraint, unless by due course of law. But of what value is this right of locomotion if it may be clogged by such burdens as Congress intended by the Act of 1875 to remove? They are burdens which lay at the very foundation of the institution of slavery as it once existed. They are not to be sustained, except upon the assumption that there is, in this land of universal liberty, a class which may still be discriminated against, even in respect of rights of a character so necessary and supreme that, deprived of their employment in common with others, a freeman is not only branded as one inferior and infected, but in the competitions of life is robbed of some of the most essential means of existence. And all this 
solely because they belong to a particular race which the nation has liberated. The 13th Amendment alone obliterated the race line so far as all rights fundamental in a state of freedom are concerned. Second, as to inns, the same general observations which have been made as to railroads are applicable to inns. The word inn has a technical legal signification. It means, in the Act of 1875, just what it meant at common law. A mere private boarding house is not an inn, nor is its keeper subject to the responsibilities or entitled to the privileges of a common innkeeper. To constitute one an innkeeper within the legal force of that term, he must keep a house of entertainment or lodging for all travelers or wayfarers who might choose to accept the same, being of good character or conduct. Redfield on Carriers, etc., Section 775. The United States government is divided into three coordinate departments, one legislative, two executive, three judiciary. These departments are an obscure deception to the Negro. These departments are upheld and supported by eight million black people, and scarcely one escapes the dreadful discrimination which in all cases means respectable accommodation for the white man and disrespectable accommodation for the black man. Salus populi suprema est lex. When the welfare of a race is evinced in the supreme law of the nation, and that law disfranchises that race, then where shall the race appeal? Certainly the colored race has appealed to Almighty God, to whom may glory and praise be given forever. As Abraham Lincoln was instrumental in bringing about freedom of the black race, so will the Almighty plant within the hearts of such heroes as John Brown and Frederick Douglass a seed of right, and it will grow and ultimately overshadow the wrong. It is noticeable that the evil forces rush on the Negro with one accord. That is, all the leaders of the American government apparently have secret consultation as to the treatment of a black man. Even merchants, hotel men, livery stablemen, newsmen, and trainmen all drift conjointly against the Negro to uphold their own affairs, and especially do the colored man out of his rights and earnings. The following clipping from a Decatur daily newspaper will serve readily in support of the foregoing statement. Under the Civil Rights Bill Nabogus was in Blue Mound yesterday to prosecute a case where J.C. Coleman sues to recover $200 damages from Landlord Blair. Coleman is a Negro and declares that he was denied entertainment at Blair's hostelry. The case was to have been heard yesterday before Justice Tidd, but Coleman telegraphed from McLean County that he was detained there by the illness of his wife, and on this plea the case was continued until Monday next. It is likely that the case will be dismissed at Blue Mound and be reinstituted in the circuit court. The above article appeared in one of the Decatur, Illinois, daily leading newspapers in the summer of 1894. The editorial staff, no doubt, were aware of the procedure and termination of all such cases. Otherwise, the prediction that the case would be dismissed in Blue Mound and reinstituted in the circuit court could not have been so frankly and authentically announced. 
the numerous disappointments attending my struggle to obtain justice in this case are so multitudinous space cannot just here be allotted for further explanation some incidents connected with the travel during the summer of 1894 in the great state of Illinois are of praiseworthy importance to the reader on other pages. End of section 6.